Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, our hearts are full of truth, gospel truth, as we sing these songs that are utterances from our hearts of just gratitude and love for you, for all that you've done in and through the person and the work of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for the fact that, uh, Lord, even through in the trials that we experience, variegated, multicolored trials, as James 1 says, that are ever before us each and every day, it seems, that even in the midst of those things, you give us the wisdom and the understanding that we need to live well under those trials. Father, thank you for that. We thank you for the fact that we are here, that, Lord, you have allowed us the freedom still in this country to worship our King, to preach your Word, to hear your Word, to apply your Word, to sing these, these words that are, Lord, are a reflection of our hearts, of our Lord, toward our Lord. And I pray, Lord, even that this morning, as we hear your word preached, that it would not be an exercise that we would, where we would be passive, where we would be, Lord, complacent, where we would um, tune out the preaching of your word, but that it would be a time where our hearts would be engaged with your truth, that we would listen and that we would be eager to apply your word and be doers of the word who are diligent to live out these truths in the power of your spirit by your grace, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We'll open your, your Bibles to Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13, verses 1 through 4 is our passage for this morning. And if you can stand with me, if you're able to stand with me for the reading of God's Word, please do so. Mark chapter 13, verses 1 through 4 is our text for this morning. This is the Word of the Lord. As he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? May the Lord bless the reading of His Word. You may be seated. Well, I am sure that in your own Christian journey, there are particular memorable statements by way of exhortation or encouragements that maybe uh, other more mature, godly Christians um, have said to you. Um, ways that they've exhorted you or encouraged you, maybe to just keep you going on in the Christian life, keep you encouraged, keep you walking in victory and all of that. And maybe as you think about your Christian journey, your Christian walk, you can you remember those slogans, those statements from these older godly Christians. One of the statements early on uh, in my Christian walk that was made to me by an older man, um, I, I had just come to know the Lord, maybe not even a year in the Lord, and he said this to me during a time when we were talking about the sovereignty of God um, over all of the affairs of human history, even my own personal life and everything that God had allowed to take place in my life. He said this to me early on. He said, Kempis, sound doctrine leads to sound living. Sound doctrine leads to sound living. And at the time, as a baby believer, I still had the eggshell on my head from just having been hatched in the Lord, so to speak. Even as a baby believer, I didn't quite understand the statement. I knew that doctrine referred to teaching and sound. He explained it was healthy teaching leads to healthy living is what he meant. I didn't really understand the full significance or ramifications of that. But as I've walked with the Lord, and as I've seen so many of my friends, or at least former friends, walk away from the Lord over the years, and even deny things that they claim to have believed in in their own Christian walk, that statement has become more and more significant to me and really has solidified and crystallized in my heart the importance of that statement, that sound doctrine, healthy teaching, leads to sound living. And the only thing that I would would change that and modify it slightly would be to say this, sound doctrine or healthy teaching, when applied, leads to sound living. When applied. Because so many Christians, all of us, can be so deficient in the way that we don't apply truth to our lives. But how true it is. Sound doctrine, 
Healthy teaching, when applied, leads to sound living. Amen? It is a very true statement. Doctrine, teaching, theology, if you will. The Word of God is very important, super important for our lives. Especially these days, for us as believers. Sound doctrine is so important to be putting the right kind of truth, healthy truth in our thinking. Especially these days. You need to know, especially you young people, but for all of us, but especially for you kids and young people, you need to know what you believe and why you believe it. You need to know what you believe and why you believe it from the Word of God, the Bible, more than ever before. So doctrine is utterly important. And along these lines, along the lines of the the value of sound doctrine, there are so many different doctrines that are so utterly important. Some of them essential, of first importance, if you will. Some of them secondary, but they're all important. All doctrine in the Scriptures is important. And one of the important doctrines for the Christian to study is the doctrine of eschatology. The doctrine of eschatology. Eschatology comes from the Greek word eschaton, meaning last or end or final things. And so eschatology, the doctrine of eschatology is the the doctrine of the end times, of the last days. Eschatology deals with, with the future matters of life. It refers to the ultimate climax of all things in God's creation. It's pertinent for us on two different levels. On a personal level, it answers the question for you, what happens after you die? What happens after I die? And on a corporate level, it answers the question, where is everything headed and how will everything end? That's the doctrine of eschatology. It answers those questions for us. Now listen, I'm aware... That some people, uh, for some people, eschatology is a, is a topic that is kind of an awkward sort of topic. For, many, for some people, eschatology is a topic to avoid. Either they view the subject as too difficult, maybe too confusing, maybe too complicated to study. Or on the other hand, they don't even want to think about this, this issue of eschatology. Maybe they're scared. Maybe the, they, they don't want to deal with the realities that the doctrine of eschatology would have them deal with or address in their own personal lives and the implications of those things that Scripture speaks of concerning eschatology or the last days. But wherever you may be on the spectrum this morning, I want you to consider that eschatology is very important for at least six reasons. Okay? Let me give these reasons to you. At least six reasons why you should be interested in studying eschatology, and you should get into God's Word and dig deep about eschatology. First, it's important because it's in the Bible. Eschatology is a doctrine that the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches about the end times, about the last days. And so if it's in the Bible, obviously we need to study everything that God says. It's important to God if it's in His Word, and it should be important to us. Amen? Secondly, Eschatology is important because it's connected to prophecy, to prophecy. And prophecy, in case you haven't noticed, is all over the Bible. And so you need to deal with eschatology if you're, in, you're going to understand biblical prophecy and the fulfillment of God's promises. Third, eschatology reminds us of the character of God. It's important because it reminds us of the the character of God. As we study eschatology, we learn about who God is, about His glory and His majesty revealed in His sovereignty and His holiness and His providential care for His people and His faithfulness and His goodness and His um, uh, disdain or wrath toward evil and sin that flows from His holy um, holy righteous character. We learn of His love for us in and through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of these attributes and many others are things that we we learn about God as we study the doctrine of eschatology or the last days, the end times. Fourth, eschatology is important because it shapes our perspective. It shapes our perspective, our outlook of life. As we study eschatology, the end times, we get a framework 
glasses, if you will, through which we view the events in our world, past, present, and even future. Eschatology gives us perspective. You know, this week, I heard of more persecution of Christians in Southeast Asia. More persecution happening over there now. And in case you haven't noticed, that's been going on for a long time. I think as Christians living in America, as people living in America, we begin to see the things that are taking place in the United States and we think, oh wow, we're really, really suffering. These are really, really bad times. And you know what? They are very concerning times. There's a lot happening that is very unprecedented as far as America is concerned. But you realize that all over the world, there are believers being persecuted. Our brethren, all you have to do is read church history. I would encourage you and exhort you right now of the necessity of reading church history. So that you could read about persecuted believers. And this week I was reading again about brothers in Southeast Asia, places where I've been, like Nepal and Myanmar. And a brother who I knew, who I met about 15 years ago, apparently he was killed recently because of his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Killed. I knew this brother, fervent for the Lord, a very loving individual, because he was sharing about the hope of Jesus Christ, that Jesus, not your works, saves you, that he gives you his righteousness if you will trust in him, that he doesn't save you based upon your own righteousness, but based upon the righteousness of Christ, and he came to die for sinners on the cross. He was doing an open-air preaching kind of a situation, and eventually somebody killed this brother. And you know what? If you don't have biblical lenses, if you don't understand eschatology the last days, you can look at that in despair. But you know what, beloved? He is now in heaven. From our perspective, we mourn and mourn with those who mourn when a situation like that takes place. But we also understand that when we study the end, the, the end times, the last days, we understand that these kinds of things are going to happen in the world against Christians, right? This happens all the time. Just read. So eschatology gives us perspective when we study it. Fifth, eschatology gives the Christian hope. As we study the last days, we find encouragement to persevere joyfully in the face of the troubling days in which we live. Sixth, eschatology fuels our resolve for mission. Eschatology fuels our resolve for mission. As we study the last days, we're motivated to fulfill the great commission that Jesus has left to us out of love for the world, knowing how the story ends. Believers in are catapulted forward. We long to see people added to that heavenly choir in heaven. Amen? As we study the end times and what is to take place in the future. So those are some reasons why um, studying eschatology is so, so important for us. And there are other reasons, but I think you get the point, okay? And so with that in mind, why am I getting into that whole introduction? Because we have the, the wonderful opportunity now in the Gospel of Mark to delve into Mark chapter 13, which will be the focus of our attention for at least four or five Sundays. We're going to take our time walking through Mark chapter 13, and this particular chapter deals with this doctrine of eschatology. The doctrine of the end, the, the last days or the end times. And so I'm going to be preaching four, if not five sermons on this chapter so that I'm not um, putting down so much information that you are just overwhelmed every Sunday morning, okay? I want to do it in a helpful way where we're going to be able to digest it and apply it to our lives as well. But listen, as we enter this dense chapter of Mark chapter 13. Can I encourage you, beloved, to be prayerful before the Lord? I want to encourage you to ask God during this series in Mark chapter 13 to give you a teachable heart, a humble teachable heart to learn what God would have to say to us and the implications of that for our lives. Pray that God would give you a deeper love for Him as we study eschatology so that you and I respond with worship and devotion and delight in the Lord Jesus Christ. Above all, ask God to, that He would give you stronger faith in His Word and that He would grant you greater a greater sense of hope in His promises here in Mark chapter 13. Okay? Because so, we need stronger faith in the Lord during these tumultuous days, don't we? 
These are troubling times, concerning times. They're a, a wonderful opportunity for us as believers to have an impact for the gospel. But these are uh, troubling times nevertheless, okay? Now, as we dive into Mark chapter 13, remember where we've been, okay? This is Tuesday of the final week of our Lord's life. In just three days, Jesus is going to go to the cross. He's going to suffer. He's going to be crucified for our sins. And things have really, really heated up between Jesus and his enemies, the religious leaders, in the chapters that we've seen prior to Mark chapter 13. His enemies have repeatedly tried to entrap him through cunning questions, trying to get him destroyed. And Jesus has not only shut them down, but Jesus has gone on the attack to prove to them... If he, as if he hadn't proven already through his wonderful words and powerful works that he is the Son of God, that he is God himself, as the Father is God. And he has also called out their corrupt character and hypocrisy. Now listen, Mark doesn't include this, but it's important to note as we come into Mark chapter 13 that also Matthew 23 has already happened by now. The parallel account of Matthew 23 tells us that Jesus culminated his interaction with the religious leaders, his enemies, by pronouncing a series of eight woes against them, where he publicly condemns them for their hypocrisy, these religious leaders, because they were false spiritual leaders leading the people astray. So Jesus has pronounced eight woes against them, and this he did out of righteous indignation because he cares about the people But he also did it out of a deep sense of love and sadness for the nation of Israel specifically. Jesus mourns for these people. Listen to the heart of Jesus in Matthew 23 and verse 37, which, as I said, has already taken place by the time that you go into Mark chapter 13. Listen to Matthew 23, verse 37. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hear the words of Jesus. He loves these people. He's mourning for these people. He knows what is coming upon them. He knows that there have been prophet after prophet after prophet over decades and and centuries warning the Israelites of God's coming judgment. And Jesus now is mourning for these individuals. And so now, on the heels of that, he begins his teaching concerning the future, concerning the last days. And really, the purpose is twofold. On the one hand, I think we're going to find that his disciples should be comforted and encouraged, although not initially by what they hear. But this is for their comfort and, beloved, for our comfort as Jesus begins to teach about the future here. But mark it. Also, the other purpose or goal here is that as we are confronted with the things that Jesus speaks about here in Mark chapter 13, we would be cautioned and warned that if Jesus is returning, we better be ready for his return, right? And so think about that. These words are going to be a huge encouragement for those who have put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is your Lord and your Savior. You're following after Him. You love Christ. But they are also a warning. A warning to those of you who have not put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That you need to be ready for the return of Christ. I know this is going to shock you, but today we're only going to look at the first four verses, okay? A couple of people are... handful of people this week texted me it'd be really hard to just zero in on the first four verses i know believe me okay and i thought about going further this morning but it would have been an hour and a half two hour sermon instead of my typical hour sermon okay so we're only going to look at the first four verses of mark 13 under three primary headings okay i want you to consider first the delighted admiration the delighted admiration in verse one and by delighted i mean that we find jesus's disciples here In verse 1, fascinated. They're enraptured by by the beauty of the temple. Remember, this is where where they've been all day in the temple. It's been a long, emotion-packed, conflict-filled day. And now, it's getting late. Most of the people in the thousands have left. And Jesus and his disciples now begin to make their way out of the temple. To make their commute out of the temple premise. And verse 1 tells us, if you notice... 
As he, Jesus, was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. With great delight, with exuberance. This one, one disciple is no doubt speaking for the rest of the disciples. He's admiring Herod's temple. And rightly so. This is Herod's temple. Which according to John chapter 2 and verse 20, for 46 years Herod, a master architect and others, had been building this temple that by now, by this time, was considered one of the great wonders of the ancient world. It was a massive temple in size. About 33 acres of land. About one-sixth of the size of Jerusalem was this Herodian temple. It stood at the top of Mount Moriah. It was a magnificent, majestic, glorious sight, this particular temple. That's why the, the disciples are in admiration of this temple here. What wonderful stones, he says. I mean, the size of the biggest stone, according to the Jewish historian Josephus, an eyewitness, Josephus was of Herod's temple, by the way. According to Josephus, the size of one of the biggest stones of that temple was 45 feet long, 12 feet high, and 12 feet thick. And get this, it's estimated that some of these larger stones weighed over 100 tons. Over 100 tons. I mean, one ton alone is 2,000 pounds. 100 tons was 200,000 pounds some of these larger stones weighed. I mean, this thing is massive. Just to give you kids or young people who love to study nature and all of that, the blue whale, right, is the largest known animal as far as I know. It's 400,000 pounds. That's 33 elephants, right? So these things were comparable to even some of the largest animals that we would know or bigger than them. These are massive stones. And then he adds, if you notice, and what wonderful buildings, he says to Jesus. Picture it. As they're making their way out of the temple proper, this disciple is marveling at the illustrious courts, its chambers, its beautiful columns. I mean, the place was decked out with gleaming gold, gorgeous cream-colored marble. It was a lovely sight. It was a majestic sight. Again, Josephus writes, The exterior of the building was covered on all sides with massive plates of gold. The sun was no sooner up that it radiated so fiery a flash that persons straining to look at it were compelled to avert their eyes as from the solar rays. To approaching strangers, the temple appeared from a distance like a snow-clad mountain, for all that was not overlaid with gold was a purest white. And so this temple was a spectacular sight. I mean, no longer they are, no, no wonder they're, they're marveling at the grandeur of this glorious place. Furthermore, think about this. On a spiritual level, to the typical Jew, the temple was the focal point of the nation's faith, right? It was a symbol of God's presence. The temple was, was a beacon of the nation's hope. You know, it was interesting last year and this year to... Observe how people responded. And perhaps many of you were just shocked as well as I was. Um, so many people responded with, with um, just shock and amazement at the, at the attacks or the invasion of the White House here in the United States. It's like, that's not supposed to happen, right? That's why people were amazed. That is not supposed to happen to the White House of all places. Why? Because the White House is a, is a, national, is a symbol of national stability and of the sovereignty of the United States. This is not supposed to take place. Well, think about this. In a greater way, the temple was that, and even more than that. And that's why what comes next that Jesus says to the disciples is such a shock to them here. We move from the delighted admiration to the disturbing prediction. Notice this, the disturbing prediction in verse 2. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Do you see these great buildings? Megalos. Literally, do you see these mega buildings? He asks. Jesus is not only agreeing with this disciple about the grandeur of the temple, but also setting him up for the disturbing prediction that he now gives. Not one stone, Jesus says, will be left upon another which will not be torn down. Oh, this is troubling to them. 
Jesus is saying, you see this majestic temple with all of its glory, with all of its beauty, with all of its wonder, it's going to get wiped out. Do you see the double negative there, by the way, in verse 2? Not one stone, which will not be torn down. That double negative there emphasizes the, the certainty of what's to happen. This is certain. This is not Jesus giving a suggestion here. This is the po- it's possible that this is going to happen. This is a declaration by Jesus of something that is absolutely, without a shadow of a doubt, going to happen. Wow. When Jesus speaks of the future, he is absolutely accurate, isn't he? I heard this week of another so-called pastor, really a false teacher, who was exposed again for living a double life. Yet another guy confessing this, to having been living a double life for years. And apparently this guy, one of the reasons why the media went after him was because this guy had predicted the outcome of the recent elections and he was not accurate on that. I mean, he really had only two choices for crying out loud, right? If you're going to try to do this, I mean, this is a good way to do it, I suppose. And he was wrong even there. Well, thankfully, Jesus isn't like that, right? When Jesus calls, tells us what the future holds, he is absolutely accurate. Our Lord's eyes on the future is with a 2020 vision. And so he declares with exactness here, with precision, what is to transpire in the future, and he never makes mistakes. Now, what does our Lord predict? In short, the absolute destruction and desecration of the temple of Jerusalem. The absolute destruction of the temple of Jerusalem. Now, you need to understand how shocking, how amazing this is for the disciples in a negative kind of way. Because of the Jewish expectation, because of the common Jewish expectation, the common Jew... The common Jewish expectation was that as soon as the Messiah would arrive, he would be a sort of political conqueror, a political ruler who would rescue Israel from, in this case, Roman oppression. That's who they were expecting. And not only that, but then return Israel back to its former glory. That was the common view of the Jew of Jesus' day. They were awaiting a political conquer. That's why back in Mark 11, as we saw, people were hollering, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna literally means, Lord, save us now. That was a cry for deliverance, for salvation, but not from their sins. It was from, from Roman oppression. That's what they were awaiting. And so for the common Jew, their expectation was that the Messiah would be a political revolutionary. But the disciples believe that Jesus is more than that by now. They believe that he's more than that. They believe he is the Son of God, though they're still trying to understand all of that and grasp the significance of that. The disciples believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They believe that he's the Messiah. And so because of that, they believe... Listen to this, because this is significant. They believe that now the time had come for Jesus to usher in his earthly kingdom as the Messiah. I mean, these disciples, as Jesus begins to teach them here in Mark 13, don't have a concept of a second coming. They don't understand that there is going to be a second coming. They were expecting Jesus to usher in the kingdom at that moment immediately. Luke 19.11 says that the disciples assumed that the kingdom would appear immediately, it says. Luke 19, verse 11. In other words, right now, the disciples are expecting Jesus to conquer his enemies and establish his throne. They have no concept yet of a second coming. It's not until later in the Last Supper that Jesus actually tells them, I'm going to the Father. The implication is, I'm returning, Right? So all of this highlights why this prediction about the destruction of the temple is so shocking to them. Maybe Jesus had made a mistake. Maybe he got his facts wrong. Well, of course he didn't. This disturbing prediction is exactly what happened, beloved, 40 years or so later in A.D. 70. Exactly as Jesus said it would take place. That there would be an utter destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. The Herodian temple. 
In God's providence, 40 years later, there was a Jewish revolt where the Jewish sought freedom. The Jews sought freedom from Roman oppression. And the Roman government, in short, long story short, in aggressive fashion, shut down that revolt, killing many Jewish rebels and innocent Jewish people. And the topper of it all was that they burned down the temple completely. They desecrated it and they looted all of its precious stones and its gold. Listen, both pagan and Jewish history records this. Again, the Jewish historian Josephus writes, quote, the temple and the city walls, except for a few, a few towers, were so thoroughly dug up to the foundation that there was left nothing to make those that came ever believe it had ever been inhabited, end quote. That's how extensive God's judgment was upon Israel. That's how definitive God's judgment was upon Israel. And so please note, Jesus' prediction, his declaration of this future event literally happened just as he stated it in A.D. 70. Again, Jesus has 20-20 vision of the future. He tells it just like it happened. And yet again, we see even here in the area of eschatology, a proof or evidence of the deity of Christ, right? That He is God. That He is omniscient. That He knows all things. That He knows the future. Because only God knows the future. Jesus is God. Isaiah chapter 46, verse 9. Listen to this. Remember the former things long past. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it, surely I will do it. That is God speaking right there. Psalm 33, verse 11 The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. Proverbs 19, verse 21. Many plans are in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. And the counsel of the Lord refers to his eternal plans, to his eternal decrees. Listen to me. When God determines something, he has both the right, meaning the authority, and the might, meaning the power, to bring his plans about exactly as he decrees to do so. That is God. And so how could Jesus make such a bold and staggering prediction and it comes to pass? Because Jesus is who? God. He is God. And that's part of the point that Mark's been making again and again and again in his gospel. And beloved, I don't know about you, but when I contemplate all of this, I'm greatly encouraged and greatly comforted. I hope that you are. You know, in our humanity, our thoughts these days especially are are full of fears, full of anxieties, full of worries, wondering if God is in control of everything that we witness in our country and all over the world. I'm sure you've been there. I've been there. Fear grips people. Fear paralyzes people these days, even Christians. And yet we need to remember that there is nothing happening right now outside of God's sovereign control. Amen? Absolutely nothing. The sovereignty of God means that God as King reigns supremely and rules with absolute authority over His entire universe. He is King and no other. R.C. Sproul has said there is not one maverick molecule in the universe. I like that. There's not one maverick molecule in the universe. Everything is under the control and the sovereign rule of God Almighty. As one pastor has said, God is never more in control than when the world is in chaos. So listen, God is perfect in his providence. And what does the providence of God mean? It means that he superintends all things, human actions and human history and brings everything to his desired end. Human actions, human history, everything that's going to reach its desired end as God designed it from the very beginning. Even if to us it doesn't seem like that. You want to personalize this? You want to personalize this this morning? There is nothing going on in your life right now. 
And there's nothing going to happen in the future that can ultimately thwart God's plans for you and I who are in Christ Jesus. Isn't that such a comforting reality? Such an encouragement? So I've had people ask me questions, something along this line. Pastor, how does this all work? How does this sovereignty of God and providence of God thing all work? Sometimes I feel like I, I've messed up my life. I've blown it. i made too, way too many mistakes. How does this all work? Listen, take comfort. Take comfort. There is in Scripture the revealed will of God. And then there is the secret will of God. There is the revealed will of God, what God has revealed to you in His Word that He wants you to do. Sometimes you follow it, sometimes you fail. We are all absolutely imperfect people. That is the revealed will of God that we imperfectly keep in our fallenness. But then there is the secret will of God, the sovereign will of God, if you will. That which you and I don't fully know that God has decreed for each of us, That one day future we will fully know. And listen to me. That secret, sovereign will you cannot touch or thwart in an ultimate way. That's why Spurgeon said the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which the Christian lays his head. It's a comfort doctrine. It's an encouraging doctrine. I'm comforted by that. I'm comforted by God's grace that I need to be faithful by His grace and in the power of the Spirit. But when I fail and I do every single day, and so do you, I know that He still loves me because of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and He still loves you, beloved. How comforting and encouraging that is. You know what anxiety is as we think about these things? Anxiety is, the, is an outlook of the future minus God. Anxiety or worry is an outlook of the future in your thinking minus God. It's atheistic in nature because we forget about the fact that God is in in control of all of those things. We need to remember that he's absolutely sovereign and that he loves us in his son. Listen, if you're struggling with anxiety and worry and fear, especially these days, you need to memorize Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 39. Okay, there's some homework for you this week. Memorize Romans 8, 28 through 39. There's a brother here at the church. He and I are going through Romans um, as much as we can, week by week, just working through chapters 6 through 8 of Romans. It's been wonderful to do that. Listen to Romans chapter 8, verses 28 and following. You know the verse. Verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew... He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Those are amazing, indestructible chain links, beloved, of God's love for you in Christ. That if He's called you, if He's predestined you, He's called you, He's justified you, He will bring you all the way to the end and He will glorify you in Christ. Isn't that comforting and encouraging? What then shall we say to these things? Verse 31. If God is for us in Christ, who is against us? He who did not spare His own Son, Jesus, but delivered Him over for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? That's speaking of Christians. God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Listen to this. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Christian. Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, verse 37, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced, writes Paul, and I hope that you're convinced, Christian, this morning, that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And all God's people said, Amen. Wow. 
We're going to learn about all kinds of distresses and sufferings and persecutions and tribulation and all of that in Mark 13. And you know what? If you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, what you have to look forward to is the second coming of Christ. That's it. When he comes to rescue you, if you're here on earth, because of the cross of Christ, God will never stop loving you if you're in Jesus. You will never be separated from him if you're in Christ Jesus And thus we can trust Him with our lives. So God is sovereign. He's perfect in providence. He loves us in Christ. This should comfort us. It should absolutely encourage our hearts. Now listen, what we have here in verse 2, and this is important as we continue to walk through in the series, this series in Mark 13. What we have here in verse 2 is what we refer to as a near fulfillment of prophecy. Okay? Write that down. This is a near fulfillment of prophecy here. Throughout the Old Testament, we have this dynamic where, where prophets, speaking on behalf of God, will prophesy about future events. Very often, there is both a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment in mind. In other words, a dual fulfillment in mind. In other words, there is a, a partial fulfillment in the day of that particular prophet. Whenever he prophesied, that's a near fulfillment. And then there's a far fulfillment on what is often referred to as the future day of the Lord, or the day of judgment. You say, Pastor, give me an example of this, this near and far fulfillment thing. I'll give you one, just for the sake of time. We're going to look at more of these as the series unfolds. Isaiah 7.14. Isaiah 7.14 prophesies that a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and and she, she will call his name Emmanuel, which translated means what? God with us, that prophecy was fulfilled at the time by one of Isaiah's sons, near fulfillment. But also we know that that son wasn't called Emmanuel, translated God with us. So ultimately, that prophecy was fulfilled by Jesus himself, far fulfillment. Near fulfillment, far fulfillment. That's one example of this. Keep this near fall fulfillment concept in mind, okay? Now, again, as you can understand here, this revelation of Jesus really troubles the disciples on two fronts, okay? Again, on the one hand, their expectation of him as the Messiah is that he's going to usher in the kingdom in the immediate. But now it's looking like Jesus is speaking of a time gap, that there's going to be a pause button to the story before that happens, before he brings his, his earthly kingdom, ushers it in. And then on the other hand, again, this news about the, the temple, this disturbing news, is, is hard for them because this is the center of Jewish life. This is the place where God dwells, a symbol of, God, of Israel's national glory, national hope, so to speak. This is the temple that these disciples have grown up with. And now Jesus is telling them that this temple is going to be wiped out. And so this is very difficult for them. And so as they make their way out of the temple, picture this. The disciples are are contemplating all of this. Are you kidding me? This is all very confusing. This is all very troubling. And so they have questions, and understandably so. Look third at the discreet inquiry. The discreet inquiry in verses 3 and 4. Four of his disciples find enough courage to come to Jesus privately. The text says that they come to him, verse 3, as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. Now, this is key here. Picture this. They have now exited the temple premises. They exited through what was known as the eastern gate of the temple. And then as you exit through the eastern gate of the temple, there is what is called a valley called the Kidron Valley. And so they make their way through, down through this Kidron Valley, and then back up the incline to the Mount of Olives. You're talking about two miles or so of walking. And now they find themselves sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. And between them is this Kidron Valley. And they are sitting down atop the Mount of Olives. And this is an elevated position here where they're sitting about 100 feet above the temple. And so think about this. From this location where they're at, they can now look down and across. And they have this panoramic bird's eye view of the temple. And I mean, it's a glorious view. It's a dramatic, breathtaking view of the temple. 
I mean, the temple looks especially heavenly, especially majestic, especially glorious from this particular standpoint where they're at. This is one of those moments where I've wondered as I studied this, what must have been going on in the mind of Jesus? I mean, he's sitting there watching the temple from a distance. His disciples are there. I mean, he's thinking about everything that's transpired that week. He's thinking about the fact that just in in three days, he's going to die for sins. He's going to be buried. He's going to rise from from the dead. I mean, what must have been going through the mind of our Lord Jesus, sitting there contemplating his final days on earth before his death? Remember, Peter is Mark's eyewitness. And so Peter is telling Mark exactly what was going on, where Jesus was seated, where everybody was. We get these details in Mark that are not in the other Gospels because Peter was an eyewitness who was telling Mark, obviously he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's authoring Scripture, but he also has a human agent who is telling him exactly where all these things were happening. Details that we don't get in the other Gospels. And so with this panoramic view in mind, look at verse 3. Peter and James and John and Andrew come to Jesus and the text says that they were questioning him privately. Back in Mark chapter 1, these are the four disciples who were the first who left everything to follow after Jesus. And you know Peter, James, and John, they're the inner circle, those closest to Jesus who received privileged information and privileged experiences from our Lord. And so these four come to our Lord and they want to know the details. Lord, give us the scoop. The temple destroyed? What is this all about? Not one stone left on top of another? Explain. And as they contemplate all of this, they want two primary questions answered. Look at verse 4. Tell us. By the way, that's a command. They are, I mean, they are so moved by what Jesus has just revealed that they are demanding answers from the Lord. That's how disturbed they are by all of this. Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? Now notice something right off the bat there. These disciples took Jesus' prediction about the destruction of the temple literally, didn't they? They didn't allegorize or spiritualize what Jesus says. That is very, very important. They take His words literally. And they want to know when these things will take place. In other words, what is the timing of all of this? Again, they were thinking that the Messiah, Jesus, would usher in the kingdom right there immediately. Establish his kingdom. So they want to know what is the timing of all of this. And they also want to know the the what. How will we know when the time is near? What are the, the signs of the end of the age? And that's key, by the way. In Matthew's parallel account, Matthew Um, gives evidence that the disciples understood that Jesus was talking about future events, the end of the age. Now that first question, the when, he almost completely ignores, as we're going to see in the Olivet Discourse. Though toward the end of the chapter in verse 32, he does say, but of that end or hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. He virtually ignores that first question in the Olivet Discourse, as we're going to see in the weeks ahead. But the second question, the what, is almost exclusively what Jesus focuses upon in the Olivet Discourse, which is what verses 5 through 37 are all about. There are parallel accounts for the Olivet Discourse. I've already alluded to Matthew chapters 24 and 25. Matthew 24 and 25 gets more extensively into the Olivet Discourse. And then Luke 21 verses 5 through 36 also records these words, the Olivet Discourse by our Lord. But the Olivet Discourse... Market is the second longest message or sermon given by our Lord, that privately to his disciples, the longest being the Sermon on the Mount, which was given publicly to the multitudes. Okay? And as I said, the setting for this sermon is at the top of the Mount of Olives, across the Kidron Valley, some 150 to 160 feet above the majestic temple of Herod. Jesus is there, and he's going to utter these words about the end of the days. The last days to his disciples. And what is the theme? The last days. The end of the age, according to Matthew's account. And what is the purpose? It's for our encouragement, brothers and sisters. 
For those of us who put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we do find encouragement as we're going to see in Mark chapter 13. But make no mistake about it as well. It's also for warning and for cautioning about the coming day of judgment. That is imminent. The imminent return of Jesus Christ. And I just want you to notice this as we close, okay? Just notice this. We're going to keep emphasizing this again and again. But look at chapter 13 and verse 28. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. This is Mark 13, 28. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Even so, you too, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near right at the door. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Here it is. Ready? Take heed. Keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. It is like a man away on a journey, who upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigning to each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. Therefore, be on the alert. For you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening, at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, in case he should come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. Speaking of the imminent return of Christ, that it can come at any point in time. And so as we study these words in Mark, please remember that. The greatest takeaway for those of you who have not given your lives to the Lord Jesus Christ, who have not trusted in Him as your Lord and Savior, is that you need to be ready for the coming of Christ. And the way that you can do that is to come to the foot of the cross, drop down your weapons against your Creator, and give your life to Him. Repent of your sins. Put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that you might be ready for the coming King. I'm really excited, beloved, about getting into verses 5 through 37, okay? And we could do it this morning, but some of you are already hungry or ready to go for your whatever coffee, cups of coffee you want to go get, right? But as I encourage you at the beginning, please make this a prayerful time during this series. Pray that God would give you a soft and teachable heart. Pray for a greater view of Him, of His faithfulness, of His providence, of His love in Christ Jesus. And as we face troubling, tumultuous days, listen, pray that God would strengthen your faith. And pray that he would deepen your love for your Lord and Savior. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, Lord, thank you. Thank you for the Olivet Discourse. Thank you for the fact that our Lord Jesus, with his disciples, gave them words concerning the future that would bring great comfort to them as they look back. After he ascended, they would look back and remember the fact that he would be returning. Lord, I pray that we would find these words comforting as well in the weeks ahead. Father, I pray for those who do not know you, who have not been reconciled to you, their creator, who have not trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that this series would be a time where they would really reflect upon their need to be restored to a right relationship with you through Jesus Christ. Father, do this amongst us in the weeks ahead. Father, humble us, strengthen our faith. These are concerning times, but they are times of great opportunity. But we will only seize upon those opportunities that we have to fulfill our mission as we find the grace that you give, as we are empowered by your Spirit. Help us to do that, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.